And we're back with another episode of The Anarchist Experience, episode 178, a.k.a. season 2, episode 46, uh, coming at you podcast only this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, and podcast only because MC's still on his trip, so not back yet. Um, So you know what that means. Another rousing edition of Richie Rich Reads the News. Before we get into that, though, let me just briefly say, if I sound a little bit out of sorts, uh, it's because I am a little bit out of sorts. Um, earlier this week, Wednesday, in fact, I record on Saturday. Uh, Wednesday of this week, I went back uh, in for surgery um, to take the rod out of my leg from the accident that I had a few years ago. Uh, so I am in <laughs> a significant uh, amount of, of discomfort and a moderate amount of pain. Um, and my voice is a little off from what it usually is. So if you're not used to that, uh, that's the reason why. If you can tolerate it, please do. Um, I'm going to do my best to to make it through the news. um, But I'm also, you know, not really all here at all right now. So I'll I'll do my best to get through it, um, to get you guys, you know, the content that you love uh, or don't even bother listening to, whatever the case may be. Um, So if I don't give you the commentary that you're used to, Uh, I apologize, and tune in next week. Hopefully, it'll be a better show then. So let's get right into the headlines. Uh, Headline, there's no such thing as the will of the people. Uh, Headline, why do some libertarians support Social Security? Uh, Headline, London mayor wants a car ban since regulating guns and knives failed. Headline, uh, Los Angeles is the first in U.S. to install intrusive subway security. All riders will volunteer. Uh, Headline, Amish Uber shows that entrepreneurship is contagious. Headline, Puerto Rico hurricane donations found rotting in parking lot. And finally, headline, uh, no, Medicare for all is still not plausible. All right, so let's just go right from the top. First headline, there's no such thing as the will of the people uh, from Don Boudreau because it mentions his age in here. Uh, Reading in, I'll soon turn 60 years old and can attest to the truth of the adage that with age comes wisdom, at least more wisdom than is available in one's youth. I can attest also that those of us in or beyond our seventh decade feel authorized to share this wisdom with others, even when others have no desire to receive it, and so I share. One insight that has grown increasingly keen as I've aged is that humanity is far more diverse than at first it seems. Although there is an undeniable human nature at the foundation of our common humanity, each individual builds upon this foundation an edifice of his or her own distinct personality. This edifice consists of unique preferences, passions, perspectives, hopes, anxieties, and things held sacred. And there are as many different personalities as there are individuals. Declaring that Americans want greater access to health care raises many more questions than it answers. Uh, These differences are ignored whenever we make statements about group preferences, such as Americans want greater access to health care. Does your neighbor want the exact quantum of additional health care that you want? Is she willing to pay the same price you are for this additional care? And is it likely that the particular kind of additional health care that she most wants, say obstetrics and dermatology, are identical to the kinds that you want? Because the answer to these questions is no, declaring that Americans want greater access to health care raises many more questions than it answers. 
The reality, in turn, means that dangers lurk when declarations such as this one prompt government to make policies. Uh, voting doesn't solve this problem. A common response to such skepticism of government action is that the correct mix of policy details is discovered, is discovered by the democratic process. How unwise. Forget that, as experience shows, government policy making is often driven by interest group pressures rather than by the will of the people. Instead, recognize that there's no such thing as the will of the people. Wisdom counsels us to beware of calls to replace individual decision-making with group decision-making. Suppose that you prefer to have 1,000 fewer of your tax dollars spent on health care in order to have 1,000 more spent on national defense, while I have the opposite preference. What's the correct policy? What's the will of the two of us collectively? There is no obviously correct answer. Now add your cousin to our small group. Suppose that he prefers to have 10 fewer of his dollars spent on health care and 10 more spent on defense. Suppose, that, suppose also that we three vote on the matter. It seems that there will be at least a majority preference to decrease health care spending and to increase defense spending. But maybe not. You want defense spending to rise by 1,000 while your cousin wants it to rise by only 10. If on the ballot is a proposal to transfer 500 in spending from health care to defense, you might think this amount to be too small, or your cousin might think it to be too big. Thus, one or both of you might vote against the measure. So I ask again, what is the will of this group? The answer is that such a will doesn't exist. Each of, the th each of these three unique individuals has a will, but the group does not. And if a group of only three people has no collective will, surely a group of 325 million people has no such will. Wisdom, therefore, counsels us to beware of calls to replace individual decision-making with group decision-making. Uh, end of the article. I think this article cuts to the core of what it truly means to, you know, be an anarchist uh, or to live that anarchist philosophy and lifestyle. And that's because as an anarchist, right, and hopefully you are, you know, one too, uh, you don't try to control other people or tell anyone else what to do. Um, with their lives, right? And, and you certainly don't use uh, the control mechanism of the state to force people to do things against their individual will. Um, and that separates us from, you know, the, the left, the right, the statists uh, out there is the fact that they're willing to grab, uh, you know, the guns of the state, the violence of government to force us to, to act against our own individual interest, against our own individual will, um, and to do things on behalf of, you know, on behalf of their individual will, um, which they disguise as, you know, the will of the collective or the will of the people, right? It's never, it's never the will of the people. It's, it's them convincing the people um, or coercing the people into believing that um, so that they can use their individual will to get what they want. And if you can recognize that that's what they're doing um, to try to get you to go along with their policies, well, then at least you can, you know, mount up some sort of resistance uh, against them and fight back and fight for, you know, your individual will. So as long as, you know, what you want to do doesn't infringe upon the, the rights and liberties of another person. And voting is brought up in the article. And I've been a, a non-voting anarchist uh, from the from the beginning of time. I've never cast a vote um, in a political election. 
but I do have um, libertarian friends, right, who who are okay with voting and running for office, um, and you know, and, and they would say like, we know I vote in self defense of of my liberties um, and my and, and to protect my rights. And I go well, no matter. There's never a policy, you know, that comes up to vote or a politician that represents you 100 percent. Right. So every time you cast a vote, you're you're still, you know, granting credence to a system that allows those individuals elected into office to impose their will onto other people. And I personally think that it's important to not cast that vote um, to remain free of that system, to, to not give any credence uh, or or you know, any, any credence, like I said, to, to that system, um, by, by participating in it, right? Like you don't, you don't participate in the system and then say, well, no, this, the system shouldn't have an effect on people. Um, you don't participate in the system and then point out the flaws of that system and the reason why you don't participate. Um, so the, the, the voting libertarians who like, you know, cast a vote for more freedom, you know, they, they should just, you know, protest, right? Like take a stand and say like no I will not allow you to infringe upon my freedoms, um, even though you cast a vote, even though the politician says so, right? If if you know if if uh, even though it's not as a big deal as much as it once was, um, but the the whole war on drugs, right? It's getting legalized in a lot more places. Um, open good thanks to the vote, right? But the the true the true anarchists, the true rebels, are the ones who said no I'm not going to vote. You know, for a politician to give me the right to smoke weed or to do my drugs, I'm just going to do it anyway, right? The, the, you, your, your legislation, your laws, your rules don't affect my behavior. Uh, I will do what I want anyway. I will consume what I want anyway. I will find other ways to, to get what I want uh, into my body. And damn you and your laws uh, who try to prevent me and damn you and your legislation who tries to, to stop me and alter my behavior. Right. You know, I, I, I am one uh, as dangerous as it is. Right. Who still manages to like text and drive. Right. And the only difference for me is, you know, that I, I now have to take my eyes off the road a little bit more in order to do it. Right. Because before uh, when it wasn't uh, illegal or wasn't against the rules and it wasn't a violation um, to do so. I would just, you know, put my phone up on top of the steering wheel where I could, I could see the road and, you know, like a, a heads up display, I could see the road and I could see the phone and I could text and not take my eyes off the road uh, one little bit because I could see everything ahead of me. Um, but now, you know, I gotta, I gotta put that shit down by the console or in my lap or whatever, uh, ma- making it more dangerous than it ever was uh, in order to do it. Um, but I still do it right. Their laws. Their laws, their rules, their legislations doesn't affect uh, my behavior. I still get done what I need to get done. Um, all it does is make it harder for me uh, to do safely. But that doesn't stop me from doing it at all. If they were to, to lax their rules and legislation, you know, that I'd, I would still do it um, anyway, right? So it's not, and I'm not going to be begging a politician, you know, please, oh, please relax the rules and I'll put you in office and I'll vote for you if only you'll let me do this. No, I'll just, I'll do it anyway. And, you know, damn the consequences that that come along with it, because I'm not going to beg for permission to do something. And I'm not going to, you know, bow down and say and and grant them the authority to tell me what I can and cannot do. Right. And and give give, like I said, credibility uh, to that system to 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 let them have that control over me. Moving on, because why not? Uh, Headline. 
why do some libertarians support Social Security? Uh, speaking of libertarians, uh, you know, and, and policies and whatnot, uh, into the article. For the life of me, I cannot understand why some libertarians support Social Security. Why do they call for fixing and reforming it instead of abolishing it? What gives with that? Don't libertarians oppose socialism? Uh, libertarians certainly are not hesitant are, are not hes- hesitating, excuse me, to criticize the Democrat Party's new congressional nominee, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for being a democratic socialist. The same goes for her political mentor, U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, who has long labeled himself a socialist. Indeed, libertarians have recently been pointing out and criticizing the destructive consequences of socialism in countries like Venezuela and Nicaragua, uh, not to mention Cuba and North Korea. Why then defend Social Security and come up with ways to fix or reform it? Isn't holding contradictory positions what the term cognitive dissonance is all about? Uh, Libertarians understand that Social Security is a socialist program. It uses the force of the state to take money from one person to whom it belongs and transfer it to a person to whom it does not belong. That's classical socialism. Uh, It's a perfect embodiment of the Marxian principle, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Uh, Libertarians also know that the idea of social security originated among socialists in Germany around the turn of the 20th century. It was never part of America's founding political economic system. It was adopted in the 1930s as part of President Franklin Roosevelt's economic revolution, uh, which transformed the federal government into a paternalistic welfare state. Many Social Security recipients have convinced themselves that they are simply getting their money back from Social Security. Uh, But libertarians know that this isn't true. Uh, From the very beginning, Social Security was set up as a welfare program for the elderly, no different from food stamps or any other welfare program. In fact, speaking of food stamps, my hunch is that most, if not all, libertarians would not hesitate to call the abolition of that particular welfare state program just as they wouldn't hesitate to call for the repeal of drug war or minimum wage. Why the different treatment for Social Security? Why not call for the abolition of food stamps and Social Security, and, for that matter, all other welfare state programs? Some libertarians want to reform Social Security by having the state force people to put their money into government-approved retirement accounts that invest in the stock market. Uh, They point to former Chilean military dictator Augusto Pinochet, who along with the CIA destroyed Chile's democratic political system in 1973 as their model for such a plan. Uh, But isn't that just economic fascism? A type of system that ostensibly respects the institution of private property, but at the same time places it under government control and regulation? It certainly shouldn't surprise anyone that Pinochet supported a system based on economic fascism. Uh, One of the people he deeply admired was the fascist dictator of Spain, uh, Francisco Franco, who himself deeply admired the economic system of Germany's dictator, Adolf Hitler. In fact, although Hitler called his system National Socialism, it was actually a hybrid of socialism and economic fascism. Given that the idea of Social Security originated among socialists in Germany, it shouldn't surprise anyone that Hitler's economic system included Social Security. But his system was also based on leaving resources and businesses under private ownership, but under government control and regulation. Is economic fascism better than socialism? Socialists say no. They ask, what would happen if the stock market crashes like they did in 1929? What then? 
In fact, many Chilean socialists want to abolish Chile's fascist social security system and restore the old socialist one, the one that was like America's current social security system. But why should libertarians engage in such a debate? Who cares whether socialism is better than economic fascism or vice versa? Aren't libertarians about economic liberty? How can economic liberty be reconciled with either socialism or economic fascism? Economic liberty entails the right to keep everything you earn and decide for yourself what to do with it. Whether you wish to spend, save, invest, or donate your money, it's your right to make that decision. Uh, being forced to share it with others through socialism or being forced to save or invest it through economic fascism is contrary to the principles of libertarianism. Uh, why not leave the defense of socialism and economic fascism to the progressives and conservatives? Uh, libertarians should be leading the way to freedom. That means the repeal, not reform, of the crown jewel of the welfare state, Social Security. Uh, end of the article. This is another one of those articles and positions where I feel it necessary um, to distinguish between anarchists and libertarians, um, at least in part. Now, I've said before that I accept uh, both labels depending on you know the, the circle that I happen to be in. Um, so I, I self-describe as an anarchist or an anarcho-capitalist or a voluntarist, uh, you know, or a libertarian. You know, like I said, depending on the circles that that we frequent. Uh, but it, when it comes to the the political sphere, right, that's where I am more anarchist than libertarian, right? If I if I'm talking to libertarians, I'm kind of on the same page and on the same side as them, um, until they start advocating for non-libertarian things. Um, and it would have been nice if the if this particular article like sourced. Um, where the libertarians advocating for reform of social security were coming from like what 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 leads the author to think that there are libertarians advocating for you know a social security welfare state because in my mind um, like the article suggests at the end um, the libertarians and the anarchists that i know um, are in full favor of abolishing the welfare state and and all of the programs that goes with it Right now, if I want to play devil's advocate for a minute, I can understand um, that people in general are are hesitant um, to abolish programs that support um, the more affected classes, like the the elderly and children uh, and whatnot, who who aren't able to you know fend for themselves, so to speak. Um, so in that respect, I can see why you would say like, well, we can't we can't just abolish it because too many people would fall off, right? They, they would have nothing and there'd be nothing to support them. And, you know, by gosh, they paid into it for so long that we have to allow them to, to take out what they paid in. Um, but as the article suggests, you know, that, that it's already not the case. It's already pulling from people paying in now uh, to pay off the, the people who have already paid in. Like their money's gone. Um, and the unfortunateness of the situation is that at some point, um, in order to, you know, to remedy the entire situation, it's going to have to be a cutoff. And yes, some people are going to fall off. Um, and I would say that it's those people's responsibility um, for putting themselves in a situation where they were dependent on this system anyway. Right. As, as an anarchist, as a libertarian, as, you know, in, in that respect, um, I try not to put myself in a situation where I'm dependent uh, upon the state uh, for anything. Um you know, it's it, sometimes it happens um, and, you know, you, you deal with the consequences. But I don't I don't feel like, you know, my retirement savings is going to be dependent on Social Security. 
right? Like I, I need to do my best to, to build up my nest egg and have that secured well ahead of time, right? I have to make sure that I earn enough money um, in the jobs that I do where I can buy my own food and, and survive on my own, where I'm not dependent upon the state later on in life, right? And the realization of that now um, sets me up for a future where I wouldn't be affected uh, when, when Social Security is, you know, is finally abolished and the welfare state finally collapses uh, on itself. Uh, and I think it's, it's the responsibility of the individuals you know, existing now um, to prepare themselves for that inevitability down the line. Uh, just as just as it was the responsibility of people currently on that system and on those welfare programs um, to do so and that their failure should not affect me and my, you know, and my future. Right. Like I shouldn't have my money stolen because they failed to plan accordingly uh, for theirs. Um, you know, even though they're they're feeble and, and weak and disabled and, you know, and like I said, um, the the lessers, the less, less, less lesser capable members of society, I guess is the best way to put it, um, to fend for themselves, that shouldn't, that shouldn't uh, burden me uh, with the responsibility of, of their care and their, and their financial situation. So I am not one of those libertarians that is advocating, you know, for the reform of social security. Um, I'd say, damn it, take the, take the whole system down with it uh, at the same time, much like the author suggests. Um, but I can, I at least have an understanding of where they're coming from. Um, I just don't agree with it, right? You want you want to take care of old people, you know, set, set something up um, where where they have a fallback um, because there's also an understanding now, right, that Social Security isn't going to go away overnight. You know, we'd like to see it abolished immediately, but we understand that that's not going to happen. Um, so now would be the time to set up, you know, the, the agorist uh, charitable programs to take care of those people so that we can abolish it and still have something there for those people who want to take care of the feeble and the elderly and you know, the weak. Uh, and, and don't forget about the children uh, that, that want to take care of those people, have something in place to do so and have an outlet to, uh, for their charitable donations to do so. Like the, those things should be, should be up and running already um, so that when the inevitable comes crashing down, we don't have to worry about those people and those members of society being cared for because we know that they will be taken care of um, through the voluntary contributions of willing participants, uh, not the uh, involuntary uh, extraction of wealth from those who don't care. Moving on. Headline. London mayor wants a car ban since regulating guns and knives failed. Uh, the mayor of the ever-increasingly violent city of London is now seeking a ban on cars in certain areas after a car attack. Uh, since banning guns and regulating knives hasn't worked, Sadiq Khan says he's likely to ban cars to prevent future terrorist attacks. Uh, violence in London continues to spike regardless of the weapons used by those committing acts of aggression. But since a gun ban and severe knife regulations have failed to stop violence, Khan wants certain areas to be car-free zones in response to an alleged terror attack committed with a car. Uh, according to Politico, Khan says his proposed car ban would help keep people and buildings safe after a car drives into cyclists and pedestrians. Uh, Khan's proposal comes after three people were injured when police say a car collided with a number of cyclists and pedestrians before crashing into barriers that lined the House of Parliament. Uh, police have arrested a 29-year-old British citizen originally from Sudan, identified as Salih Qatar, 
by British media outlets on suspicion of committing the attack. Police claim that the alleged terrorist drove his Ford Fiesta from Birmingham to London late on Monday night. Uh, just before the attack, police say he had been driving around the area of Westminster and Whitehall for about an hour and a half before driving into pedestrians and cyclists. Uh, Khan told BBC Radio that making certain areas only available pedestrians would provide more safety uh, to both citizens and buildings in the surrounding area. But he also said the city would need to ensure people don't lose one important thing about our democracy, people having access to parliamentarians, people being able to lobby parliament and being able to come and visit parliament. Uh, Khan added, I think there would be lots of challenges if we would do the whole square. It is a thoroughfare for cars, vehicles, and commercial deliveries going through London, he said. So it's possible to have a design solutions. Uh, in keeping our building and people as safe as we can, can do, and also not losing what is so wonderful about our city that is a vibrant democracy, people can walk around safely. Well, since all other laws aimed at preventing violence have failed, uh, why not just keep banning things? Pretty soon everything will be illegal in the UK and the people will wonder uh, when they actually became slaves to the government. Uh, we enter Parliament in order to supply ourselves in the arsenal of democracy with its own weapons. If democracy is so stupid as to give us free tickets and salaries for this bear's work, uh, that is its affair. We do not come as friends, not even as neutrals. We come as enemies. As the wolf bursts into the flock, so we come. Uh, a quote by Joseph Goebbels. Uh, end of the article. Now, I know it's in London, and I know those people are crazy when it comes to, like, banning things and surveilling their people. Um, but it's just another one of those things where eventually it makes its way over here, right? Like, they, they ban guns, they ban knives, they ban cars. And what are people clamoring for now here is a way to restrict and ban guns. Um, so we're not we're not as far down the line uh, in America yet. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, 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 the violence banning trumpets are being sounded uh, across the board here as well. And whereas they're not banning guns completely here, um, you know, there, there's restrictions on the types of guns, you know, the magazine capacities, you know, the accessories that you can have with it. Um, so the, the, the members of the state, you know, of, of the, the state class, uh, I'll call it, um, are always looking as looking for ways to restrict the freedoms of the people or the regular class. Um, and the, the quote at the end of the article from um, Goebbels, right, is, an, is another highlight of what's wrong with democracy and calls back to the first article we read, which, which is, you know, why there can be no collective will of the people. Because at some point, you know, even with the Goebbels quote, they admitted it, right? The, the, the system of democracy and of that governmental structure is set up in a way for one group of people to take control, uh, to take power and to wield that power over others. Um, and in, in their case, you know, it was, it was to take it over and, and wield it violently uh, against one, you know, certain groups of people or one specific group of people. And from the anarchist perspective, right, from my perspective, um, that system shouldn't even be available to anybody to take over, right? There's, there should be no government, there should be no state apparatus uh, that one group of people can take control over and use to wield power uh, and force another group of people to, to do, you know, to do what they wish. It shouldn't exist. So what, when we call for, you know, the abolition uh, 
when we call for the abolition of the state and for the for the governmental structure, it's for that very reason, right? Because we don't we don't want there to be a control apparatus uh, for anyone to control. We want individual people uh, to operate, you know, voluntarily with each other, you know, through trade and through commerce and you know through all that other voluntary interactions. Um, and if violence, you know, if violence breaks out, then there'll be a way to, you know, to, to deal with that. Um, but we don't want that to be the norm. We don't want that to be a guarantee uh, part of society. Right. Like, there, you know, I've said before, uh, un- under any under anything but anarchy, uh, you know, violence is a guarantee. Right. If you have democracy, you're, you're wielding, you know, power and violence over another group of people. Same with the republic, same with fascism, same with socialism. Um it's always power and control of one group over the, over the rest. Um, with anarchy, there's the, you know, there's, there's no guarantee that it'll be peaceful, a hundred percent peaceful, but there's also no guarantee, you know, there's no violence built into the system. So there's no guarantee of violence, um, in an anarchist system. So it's the only system in which peace is even possible, uh, because it's the only system that doesn't guarantee violence at some level. Uh, now, do I believe in, in you know a, a utopic system where it's going to be peaceful all the time and no violence and everyone's just you know getting along all hunky dory? Uh, absolutely not. Um, but it is it, it's the only one with the possibility because it's the only one without that built-in structure. And what they what they got going on in Britain is so outrageous. You know, Britain, London, you know, UK, whatever is so outrageous that you know the 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 control over the people is so great. Um, and because at every turn the people are co- constantly and consistently being disarmed, um, they're losing all their ways and all their mechanisms for fighting back against the state uh, because they just they just can't do it, right? You know, they they take away your guns, you can't you can't shoot back. They take away your knives, you can't fight back. You know, now they're taking away your cars, so you can't even run them down. Uh, all for all for the protection, you know, against terrorism and terrorists and all this other nonsense. Um, but it's just another it's just another mechanism of control uh, to keep the people in line, um, to keep, you know, to keep the slaves in order, uh, as opposed to letting people be free to make decisions and, and being free to, you know, for being free to, to care for their own lives, um, be responsible for their own safety and choices in life. Um, and it's just, you know, nonsense all the way around. Moving on. Los Angeles is first in U.S. to install Intrusive subway security, uh, all riders will volunteer. See, here's another one. I got, well, I'll get into it in a minute, but here's another one where, you know, it's, it's uh, mission creep. And I saw an, another headline regarding the, the same topic, which is basically, you know, the conspiracy theorists were right. You know, when the TSA first came around, they said, no, no, you know, it's, it's only for airports and said, no, they're, they're going to be moving this on. It's just, you know, it's, it's mission creep where it's going to be in bus stations and substations and any place else. Uh, that there's public transportation, um, and the conspiracy theorists got flack for that. Right? There's no, no, no. It's not going to go that far. There's, there's, you know, it's it's only to protect us and keep us safe from terrorists. Um, so it's only it's only in the airports. Um, and then here we go. Nope. Uh, now it's now it's creeping out. Uh, Los Angeles to install intrusive subway security. All riders will volunteer. Uh, so reading the article, the frog supposedly does not feel the slow increase of temperature until the water it sits in boils. Uh, in a similar vein, people in a similar vein, people do not feel the loss of their freedoms when the observation and control instruments used on them are slowly more and more intrusive. The city of Los Angeles ratchets those the screws up a few notches. 
Uh, Los Angeles is the first in the U.S. to install subway body scanners. Uh, Los Angeles subways will become the first mass transit system in the U.S. to install body scanners that screen passengers for weapons and explosives, officials said Tuesday. Uh, the machines scanned for metallic and non-metallic objects on a person's body can detect suspicious items from 30 feet away and have the capability of scanning more than 2,000 passengers per hour. The capacity to check 2,000 passengers per hour is way too small for a subway line, which usually has between 20 and 30,000 passengers per hour. Uh, while the system is software supported, it will still need a lot of paid staff to watch the screens and to bother all the people who might carry something suspicious. Uh, there will likely be dozens, if not hundreds, of false alarms per day. This is supposedly to prevent someone with an explosive belt or an automatic rifle from entering the subway with the intent to commit mass murder. But how often does that happen? Uh, globally, it's probably once per decade, with zero to a few dozen casualties in any such incident. Uh, the risk of accident or fire is much higher. It is doubtful that these expenditures and operating costs are justifiable. Such security theater has the effect and purpose to make people feel afraid. It also makes people, few people very rich. Uh, but we are told that it is good for us. And taking part in this nonsense, it is, of course, completely voluntary. Uh, signs will be posted at stations warning passengers that they are subject to body scanner screenings. Uh, the screening process is voluntary, Wiggins said, uh, but customers who choose not to be screened won't be able to ride on the subway. Uh, the poor have little choice but to use the subway and to get voluntarily screened. The rich, though, will not be bothered at all. Uh, end of this short article. There's not much more to add to this other than, see, we told you so, right? Like, you know, when I mentioned in the beginning with the conspiracy theorist, uh, you know, saying, and I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist necessarily, uh, but there, there are certain things that happen where you can definitely um, foresee the state moving in one direction over another, um, and this is one of them. Right. I don't think you needed to be a conspiracy theorist uh, at the time to make the claim that this was going to be mission creep. Right. As, so as soon as, you know, the TSA, you know, came into effect, um, it's it's been, you know, all downhill and, and more restrictive uh, from the beginning. Right. From the whole, um, you know, shoe bomber. Right. So now we all have to take off our shoes um, to for whatever reason. You know, the last time we went through TSA, it was, you know, no, no snacks. Uh, you know, in the bags, like they're, they were inspecting all your food items in your carry-ons now. Whereas, you know, prior to that, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing, right? Like who cares, who cares if you have food? I didn't have, I didn't have to take out my food, you know, my snack items and separate it out for TSA to look at. It was just, you know, it was in my bag and it went through with everything else. Um, so, so, so for mission creep from the TSA and, and that sort of thing should have been expected and shouldn't be, shouldn't taken a conspiracy theorist uh, to point out. Um, but you know, but, but like they said, right, this, this is just mission creep and it's only going to get worse from here. Right. So, so now it's going into the subways, um, uh, and you know, a, a safe prediction, right. Is that it'll be at the bus stations, um, you know, and, and bus stops and any other place where there's public transportation. And the big thing to point out again, is that it's completely unnecessary, right. You know, when, when was the last time you heard, uh, of a of a subway massacre or a bus bombing or anything like that outside of the movies, right? It's 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 such a rare instance, especially here in the United States, um, as rare as the initial uh, September 11th terrorist attack that that sparked all of this, right? You know, they they got one, um, and that that was now what 17 years ago, 
um, or so, right? 2000, well, yeah, 17 years ago, almost, you know, within a month. Uh, that, and that's been it, you know, realistically. Like any, any terrorist attack on that scale has, you know, has been null and void um, for, for, you know, the good part of 17 years. So the fact that all of a sudden we need to, to move that type of security to where it's even less likely to occur, uh, number one, is, again, just a, just mission creep as far as an encroachment on freedoms um, and removing individual rights and liberties um, and more towards controlling the population and getting getting people used to, uh, you know, having having these types of agencies and this type of control uh, over their regular everyday movement. And again, I'm not too bothered by the fact that it's, you know, more affects the poor um, than it does the rich. And it's not because I'm anti-poor or pro-rich. Um, it's just that at some point in time, you know, the, the, the rich will be affected um, unless they're the ones in power. Right. If they're if the rich are if the, the rich that they're referring to are the, you know, the politicians and the political class and the state class that controls everything. Well, then, yeah, the, there'll be exemptions written into the law. You know, there'll be uh, there'll be ways that they can get out of it. Um, and it'll only affect, you know, the the marginalized members of society uh, as much as possible. Uh, and, and that's you know, that's the way it always is. Right. There there's it's always an us versus them. Um, and they're always in control and they always set the rules. And no matter how you vote, uh, no matter, you know, how you petition um, your your political class or your political representatives, uh, the fact always remains that, you know, they're looking out for their best interests, not yours, no matter what they say. Um, and also why I say, you know, the, the only real protest uh, is a tax protest. And it goes back to, you know, some of the earlier articles and, you know, what what can you do to 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 rise up? And fight against this and the only thing you know that really works is to withhold your money right with with withhold your money withhold your funding don't let them have it um, and be vocal about it to enroll others into getting on board uh, with you on that now the old Ben Franklin quote um, you know we we shall we shall hang together or surely we shall all hang separately um, is very true like a, a one-man tax protest gets you know nothing done except one man killed um, but a, a, a society-wide uh, tax protest or a society-wide refusal uh, to comply, right? You know, let's let's the powers that be know um, that there's there's resistance coming. That you know that th- we the people, uh, for lack of a better term, aren't going to be taking it uh, anymore. And it's not a it's not a collective will thing, right? It's 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 a collective agreement, a, a voluntary arrangement amongst people to 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 use that collectivizing um to their benefit right like uh, uh, you know individual rights are what they are um, but at some point if you're going to take on you know the the massive conglomerate of the state um you have you have to band together um and i don't want to conflate banding together and voluntarily association voluntarily associating with your neighbors uh with the goal of you know defending your individual rights and liberties the same as you know ganging up or grouping together or collectivizing uh insofar as that you know those tools are used uh to infringe upon the rights of other people right it's it's okay uh to to band together and to team up with your neighbors uh for collective defensive purposes and to to defend your rights Uh, but when you collectivize in a manner that infringes upon the rights of other people um that's when it it denotes that negative connotation um, in my mind that's all moving on i'm gonna do my best to fill out the hour but i'm i'm losing steam and i got three more articles to go and and at this point about 20 25 more minutes of content to produce for y'all so bear with me here we go 
uh, Amish Uber shows that entrepreneurship is contagious. The ride-sharing economy seems to know no bounds. From bike-sharing to platforms that pair riders with drivers who accept cryptocurrency to the most recent trend of motorized scooters, uh, there seems to be something for everyone. But now, this service has entered a whole new market and is being extended to include even those who are religiously opposed to the technology that brought consumers and ride-sharing economy in the first place, proving just how influential this burgeoning sector really is. Amish Uber On the surface, the Amish do not seem like the ideal target audience for ride-sharing apps. For starters, while some have embraced modern technology, uh, many still do not use smartphones, making the entire model of ordering a ride via your smartphone completely useless. And if handheld electronics are out of the question, uh, you can probably imagine what the stance is on automobiles. Even so, this prohibition of electricity and modern conveniences hasn't stopped one member of the Amish community from capitalizing on the popularity and success of ride-sharing platforms like Uber. While this might not seem like the most cutting-edge venture, a business is booming, and both locals and tourists are flocking to use Amish Uber. Uh, even without having ever first-hand experience with Uber, uh, Timothy Hostedler stood in awe of the business model. Hailing from the town of uh, Cologne, Michigan, a small Amish community comprising of only 1,200 residents, Hostetler was inspired by this modern application of the entrepreneurial spirit and how quickly it caught on with consumers around the globe. Of course, neither Uber nor Lyft services the Cologne area uh, for obvious reasons, but this has left a void in the market for transportation, uh, one that Hostetler is all too happy to fill. Enamored as Hostetler was with this model, he was inspired to bring this type of service to his town, and like any great entrepreneur, he saw an opportunity to earn some money with his own version of the service. To be sure, Amish Uber, as he calls it, does not offer car rides to its users, uh, but just as Uber drivers use their own car to transport riders from one location to another, Hostetler uses his own personal horse and buggy to provide Cologne residents and tourists with safe rides to their destination of choice. And it's precisely this utilization of personal property that has led to the creation of the term sharing economy in the first place. Anyone looking to use his services needn't download an app because Hostetler doesn't even own a phone. Instead, interested consumers need only flag him and his horse down and pay the $5 flat fee he requires. And while this might not seem like the most cutting-edge venture, business is booming. And both locals and tourists are flocking to use Amish Uber. So much so that Hostetler has recently found himself the subject of many news stories. Uh, speaking to a local news outlet, Hostetler excitedly said, uh, Uber is a cool thing. Every single year, something new comes in and Uber is hot right now. So we have the Amish Uber. To clarify, Amish Uber has no official affiliation with the giant of ride-sharing world. And in our age of intellectual property protectionism, it is only a matter of time until the company demands that he stop using their name altogether. Uh, but the fact that Hostetler adopted the name Uber speaks volumes of the runway success of the runaway success, the entire sharing e economy sector and its impact on the world. Entrepreneurship is universal. Uh, let's be honest. Aside from the self-ownership aspect, physically hailing a ride rather than ordering a car via smartphone app, 
sounds a lot like basic taxicab model that has been in existence for decades. But for as long as the cab industry has been around, uh, it did very little to inspire entrepreneurs in remote communities like Cologne. Yet, even without internet access or television, Hostetler recognized ride-sharing as a major disruptor in the transportation world, and he wanted to be a part of it. This is because ride-sharing represents something more than just convenient rides. It embodies the entrepreneurial spirit and allows individuals to be in control of their earnings, uh, be in control of earning their own wealth. Entrepreneurship is contagious, and despite major cultural differences, the powers that comes with earning money is understood by all. Uber and other ride-sharing startups have empowered individuals by giving them the ability to earn money by using property they already own to create value for consumers. And the repercussions of this have been huge. Those who suddenly find themselves unemployed are able to provide a temporary financial safety net by using their cars to quickly earn money while they job hunt. Additionally, those burdened with student loan debt are able to ease the blow by supplementing their income driving for Uber. Uh, Ride-sharing is allowing just about anyone to become an entrepreneur on their own terms, and that is important. Uh, Entrepreneurship is contagious, and despite major cultural differences, the power that comes with earning money is understood by all. Hochstetler not only recognized the significance of Uber's ride-sharing model, but he also recognized it as an excellent source of income. And in his community, where career choices are limited to traditional sectors like farming and furniture making, this new business has given him the freedom to earn money his own way while still keeping the, within the rules of his community. Many of us might not find that we have a whole lot in common with the Amish community, especially as the world becomes increasingly digitized. But the entrepreneurial spirit transcends culture and language barriers. Uh, Uber and Lyft allow almost anyone with a car the freedom to earn money and secure their own futures. Uh, and this ability to earn money is, in itself, a freedom almost everyone seeks, whether they be tech geeks or Amish farmers. Uh, end of the article. The only thing I will say to this is good for the Amish people, uh, or the, the one Amish dude for, you know, striking it out there and, and doing his own thing. Um, one thing I will say, though, is working for Lyft or Uber um, does not make you an entrepreneur, right? It makes you an independent contractor which is different, <laughs> completely different than an entrepreneur, uh, because you're doing, you're doing the work for them. It's this, it's the same problem I have with, uh, many of my friends who are in, in into like multi-level marketing. And that is they, they think they're entrepreneurs because, you know, they, they, they do their own marketing and they set their own hours and they're responsible. But the fact of the matter is they're still working for another company. Um, so if you're, if you're a Lyft driver, right, you still work for Lyft you can set your hours as a contractor, uh, but you're not an entrepreneur, right? If you're an Uber driver, same thing, any, any of that sharing economy type of things where you get sure you get to use your own property, um, to, to earn money. Um, but if you were really an entrepreneur, you wouldn't be under the Lyft uh, or Uber brand. You'd be, you'd be more actually like this Amish dude, uh, under the Amish Uber, right? Cause it's, it's his buggy. It's his company. He sets everything and doesn't have to pay uh, a fee or anything like that to, you know, to any other company. Like this is his own ride sharing service. The fact that he's using, um, the Uber name is inconsequential, um, to the fact that it's, it's his own company, his own service. Um, aside from that, yeah, good on him. Um, and, the, and, you know, as the article said, at some point they're going to come after him. Um, I'm surprised that, you know, the, the 
taxi cab companies or whatever the local government um, isn't coming after him for for uh, running an unlicensed gypsy cab uh, type of a thing, right? I'm I'm sure it's I'm sure it's less of a problem because it's it's a predominantly Amish community. Um, but if you were to do if you were to do this and provide this type of service outside of that environment, uh, I'm sure you'd be busted for not only using the Uber name but prov- but providing you know uh, what they call like the gypsy cabs, right? Which you know which prior to Uber and Lyft were more of a a source of stories for for you know shows like this one where people were giving people rides um and taking donations but they weren't they weren't licensed cab drivers they didn't have medallions in the areas um so they were being you know they, the the police departments in the areas were doing sting operations uh, to bust them for taking money uh even to the point where i read one article long ago um where the the person was giving rides away for free like just just as a as a service was giving away rides and the passenger, the, the undercover cop insisted, you know, that the person take payment for it. Otherwise, you know, they couldn't, they, they couldn't do the sting operation cause it wasn't, you know, an illegal cab service. It was just a friendly gesture, but they insisted uh, that the guy take payment. And once he took payment, um, then busted him for, for running an illegal cab service. So, so something like Amish Uber, I'm sure will get shut down uh, eventually um, or at least harassed by the man eventually. Um, but good on, good on him for having the entrepreneurial spirit, good on him for using, you know, what he knows about the world to provide a valuable service to people willing to pay, right? People voluntarily use his service. Uh, he voluntarily offers it. Uh, and, and in the world, absent the state and absent the government, that's, that's all it would take, right? He offers the service, you accept the service, you pay for the service, uh, end of transaction. No, no taxing needed, no regulations needed, um, no no oversight, you know, needed. It's just, you know, do you, do you trust him? Do you want to go for the ride? Is it valuable enough to you to, to pay for it? And that's what you end up doing. Moving on. Puerto Rico hurricane donations found rotting in parking lot. <clears throat> Several trailers of donations for Puerto Rico residents dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Maria have reportedly been found unused and rotting outside a state elections office nearly a year after the storm created a humanitarian disaster on the island. A local radio station, Radio Isla, first reported uh, on the wasted aid earlier this week with a video showing at least 10 trailers with food, water, and baby supplies covered in rat droppings. According to New York Times, which viewed the trailer, trailers and reported on them Friday, the goods were found at a site that was used as a collection point for humanitarian aid donations. Uh, Major Paul Dahlin, a spokesman for the National Guard, was unable to explain why the donations were left to rot after the National Guard ended its operations in the area in May. According to the Times, I agree it should have been handled, handed out as soon as possible. He was quoted as saying, while the National Guard said some of the food products were not distributed because they were spoiled, footage also showed cases of water. Uh, which residents had been in desperate need of after the storm. The discovery comes as Puerto Rican authorities admitted that the actual death toll for Hurricane Maria was 1,427, more than 20 times the figure of 64 initially provided. End of the article. Uh, So, yeah, I think, you know, the the most prescient thing about this article uh, was the fact that, you know, it was was government-run, found right outside their, their holding facility, uh, and they did nothing with it, right? Like, who does who does that aside from the state, 
right? Even even when there was the Hurricane uh, Katrina uh, in the United States, right? It, private charities and private companies and private organizations were trying to deliver water and uh, necessary supplies and were being turned away by the government uh, in order to do, uh, you know, and turned away from the government from doing so. Uh, and here you have it where the government is in charge of collecting and distributing uh, all these goods. Uh, and what do they do with it? They let it, they let it sit and they let it rot uh, and, and nothing else becomes of it uh, because they're just so incompetent. Right. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the article, the, you know, to, to underestimate or underreport the death toll um, is, is so irresponsible that it's, it's, it's a wonder to me how anyone still, um, believes what, you know, believes anything that comes out of the government's mouth or can support them, uh, in, in any way. All right. Last article moving on. Hopefully, hopefully with enough to finish it. Uh, no Medicare for all is still not plausible. Uh, last week, left-wing politicians, activists, and columnists gleefully rejoiced that they had unlocked the easy path to single-payer health care in America, just cut reimbursement payments to health providers by 40%, and then raised taxes by $32 trillion over the decade. You know, nothing difficult or controversial. Uh, these liberals are cheering and broadly misinterpreting a new report uh, by Charles Blayhouse a former public trustee of the Social Security and Medicare system and currently a senior fellow at the Mercatus Center. Uh, the report's purpose was to estimate the cost of Senator Bernie Sanders' recent Medicare for All health plan. Uh, while other organizations scoring Sanders' health proposal have adjusted some of the plan's more ludicrous assumptions, the Mercatus study charitably accepted its absurd assumption that payment to health providers could be slashed by 40% without any negative effects on health delivery. What they think the report says. Uh, Mr. Blayhouse estimate, estimates that in the fantasy world of this proposal, projected national health spending over the 2022 to 2031 period would dip from $60 trillion to $58 trillion. However, by nationalizing health care, the share of health spending paid by the federal government and our federal taxes would rise by $32.6 trillion. Sanders himself tweeted a thank you for accidentally making the case for Medicare for all. A liberal opinion leaders whose first reaction was to slam the study before they even read it eventually seized on the reduction in national projected health spending as proof that single-payer health care saves money and is thus a bargain. Uh, liberal publications offered headlines such as Medicare for all would save U.S. trillions. Single payer could save Americans two trillion. Bernie Sanders 32 trillion Medicare for all plan is actually kind of a bargain. And we have more proof that single payer saves money and cares for all of us. Sanders himself tweeted a thank you for accidentally making the case for Medicare for all. Uh, single payer advocates should not spike the football yet. Under any fair reading of the report, single-payer health care remains as implausible as ever. What the report actually says. First, the 40% reduction in provider payments is wildly unrealistic. Uh, Sanders assumes that hospitals, physicians, and others can be reimbursed as Medicare's payment rates, which at the time of implementation would be 40% below what private insurers receive, Yet Medicare already underpays providers. Uh, Mr. Blayhouse explains that in 2014, 
Hospitals were reimbursed just 89% of their cost of treating Medicare patients and 90% of their cost of treating Medicaid patients. Losses that were offset by hospitals collecting private insurance reimbursement rates equaling 144% of their cost. Cutting all hospital and medical providers to Medicare rates without the ability to recover those losses by charging higher insurance rates to others would bankrupt many health providers. While some efficiencies can always be found, an immediate 40% reduction is not even remotely plausible. Uh, that is why the Urban Institute's analysis of the Sanders 2016 single-payer plan insisted on more realistic payment rates and concluded that the plan would raise national health spending by $6 trillion over the decade. Uh, the Mercatus study also shows that even moderating these provider cuts would add $6 trillion uh, in additional costs. So, to recap, Senator Sanders' bill provides universal coverage with full benefits that also include dental, vision, and hearing care with no direct cost whatsoever for patients. This would be so expensive that even an impossible 40% cut in provider payment rates would be needed to roughly break even. Uh, projected national health spending would fall by just 3%. That is an argument against, not for, single payer. How would we pay for it? We can't. Uh, next, single-payer advocates would ha not have grappled with the $32 trillion tax increase over the decade needed to finance this legislation. Activists has argued if national health spending does not rise, that must mean that $32 trillion new federal cost represents an equal reduction in the cost for state governments, families, and businesses. Thus, they argue that converting those savings into a federal tax would leave families and businesses no worse off. This is fantasy land. Uh, this is why Sanders' legislation skips the taxes altogether. It is not nearly that simple. There is no single-payer tax that would perfectly match what businesses and families had been paying, including varying out-of-pocket expenses, so any tax would invariably create enormous winners and losers. For example, 77 million Medicaid recipients, recipients currently pay no health insurance premiums, just limited copays, and thus would not receive any insurance premium windfall to help pay for their steep new single-payer taxes. Overall, designing a $32 trillion tax increase is nearly impossible, even if families and businesses now have more money. Even if we assume Washington could tax states for the $4 trillion they save by no longer running programs like Medicaid, they still need to raise everyone else's taxes by roughly $28 trillion, which would represent a 60% increase in federal revenue using a menu of budget savings provided by the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, raising taxes by $28 trillion would require choosing amongst options such as uh, creating a new 31% payroll tax on top of the current 15.3% tax, uh, imposing a 72% value-added tax uh, like a national sales tax, or uh, raising income tax rates by 35 percentage points across the board. For the record, uh, repealing the 2017 tax cuts would cover just $1.8 of the cost, and even if lawmakers could find the taxes to pay for this plan, there remains the underlying $84 trillion baseline budget deficit projected by CBO over the next 30 years, which is driven mostly by the soaring cost of single-payer Medicare. Uh, we cannot even pay for the existing system. Add another income tax rate increase of 15 percentage points to pay for that. This is fantasy land. This is why Sanders' legislation skips the taxes altogether. 
Instead, he offers a web page listing just $16 trillion of potential tax increases to pay for a $32 trillion bill. And even those questionable tax estimates fail to account for macroeconomic responses, uh, interaction between tax proposals, and in several places, political reality. Time to put up. It is noteworthy that for all the claims that single-payer health care can easily be paid through provider payments, reduction, and new taxes that replace the existing health premiums, no one has actually produced such a plan. If converting all state governments, business, and family health care savings into a $32 trillion single-payer tax is so easy, why has no politician, tax economist, or health economist offered a single proposal to do so? Critics may disagree. Fine. Then produce an actual proposal. The obvious answer is because the American people would never accept a $32 trillion tax increase, even in return for free health care. Single-payer health care is most persuasive when framed with the vague, if Canada and Europe can, why can't we, rationale. Never mind the taxes in those places are much higher, and that their single-payer system are less expensive than an American system would be, because A, our proposals are substantially more generous, and B, our population is less healthy, and C, America decided decades ago to invest more heavily in expensive technology, roomy hospitals, and pharmaceutical research, and maintaining this larger infrastructure costs money. People can debate whether the American system is better or worse, yet transitioning to Sanders' absurdly generous Medicare for All plan would, be, would not be remotely workable nor affordable. Critics may disagree fine, then produce an actual proposal and this time include both the specific tax increases that would require and a blueprint for how providers would survive such a deep payment reduction. Until then, affordable single-payer health care will remain just an empty talking point. Uh, end of the article and end the show. Uh, I'm done. I'm fatigued. I'm tired. Uh, I offer no commentary beyond that. Uh, so f- you guys know where to find us, uh, anarchistexperience.com, facebook.com slash anarchistexperience. Uh, if you want to read through the articles from previous week, because I made it through all of them this week, uh, do show on our group's page, facebook.com slash groups slash anarchistexperience. Uh, and don't forget to follow us on the Twitters, uh, twitter.com slash the anarchist exp. And if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, because, well, hell, why not? Uh, you love the sound of my voice, even when it's all raspy and cutting out like it is today. Uh, do it through Patreon, patreon.com slash The Anarchist Experience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace. <laughs>